so that's an afterglow effect of the experience. And I, I would suggest that that afterglow is, is the result of having gotten so absorbed in the experience that you lost yourself. And that yes. lo- losing yourself is what yields that, that kind of uh, all these rewards that now research is showing is linked to mindfulness. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real conversations that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. And man, do we have a standout conversation today. Uh, We are sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, you'll be able to set yourself up for a free growth review with an expert in your industry. So check out netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about one of my favorite new websites, growwire.com, featuring stories of innovation and growth for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people. Check out growwire.com when you get a chance. All right, on this episode, the insightful and engaging mindfulness guru herself, Juliana Ray. And look, I know mindfulness has been a really big topic and um, there's a lot of, um, I, you know, I, I would call some BS around some of this stuff. And Juliana is a very practical, uh, no BS kind of gal. And we have a powerful conversation about mindfulness. And I love this about Juliana. She's real. She's not one of these loopy doopy types. Um, She has many powerful insights into how to use mindfulness to apply your attention to your life that will make your life much more effective and powerful. And um, we talk about how being mega present can change your life. Um, We also dig into Juliana's past. She's got an amazing, um, uh, she has an amazing, she has an amazing history as a musician uh, and what she gained from becoming a musician, a singer, a songwriter. And she had a serious career. She worked with superstars like Jeff Lynn of ELO and the Traveling Wilburys. And uh, by way of example, for a couple years, she opened for Don Henley, Don Henley of the Eagles playing in front of thousands, 12,000, 14,000 people in these giant arenas. Um, And she's also brutally honest about what it was like in the music industry, the incredible successes she had and the incredible failures that she had and how she converted those experiences and some of the pain and some of the um, excitement and and, and, uh, success into designing an amazing second life for herself as a mindfulness guru. So on this episode, you're going to gain some powerful insights you can put to work in your life right away. Go to Lockhead.com to check out the show notes and uh, the key takeaways for this episode. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I had a headache actually a little while ago, but I did a little practice and uh, I'm feeling better. So Juliana, how does uh, mindfulness practice help with a headache? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, mindfulness practice is about how you apply your attention. And it turns out there are optimal ways to apply your attention. Um, and 
you can, if you have a pain like a headache, uh, you have strategy options for how you address that pain. So uh, in my case, um, I actually realized that I was having an emotional reaction to the pain, like the, the headache was happening and I was feeling kind of like, woe is me, you know what I mean? Poor me, I have this headache. And so I was focusing on the emotion, poor me. I was noticing where it was located in my body, how intense it is. Uh, I was noticing any other sensations, anger. I felt angry about the headache, pissed off about the headache. I was noticing where that was located in my body. And I was opening up to the experience of the anger and the poor me sadness. And as a result of doing that, just paying attention to where it was located in the body and opening up to the experience as it was happening, it helped release it, helped me get not so stuck in it. And that um, allowed the experience to flow a little bit more. And oftentimes when you do that, uh, the pain has a chance to kind of go away. I mean, not always. Um, sometimes it sticks around, but, uh, in any case, it makes it more manageable because so, you're, yeah, go ahead. So are you, are you making yourself, if I could use this language, more present to the pain? Uh, yeah, you're like putting your attention on it and you're getting very in well, touch with it. Yeah, I mean, you, that's one way to handle it. So you could turn towards the pain and work directly with the physical pain. But you could also choose to what's called anchor away from it. And in that case, you know, yes, you're, I mean, what is being present, right? We, we throw these words around. That's like, what does that mean? Um, so I like to define what it means to be present in a way where people could actually understand how to do it if they want to do something. Um, so concentration, sensory clarity, equanimity, these are the what mm -hmm. concentration, sensory clarity. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's it. Um, concentration, sensory clarity and equanimity. Okay. Slow, slow down. Even concentration, sensory yep. equity. Sensory clarity. Sensory clarity. Jeez. Sensory clarity. Sensory. Yeah. Sensory clarity. Okay. And what's the last one? And then equanimity. Okay. So what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> hey, that was what was in my mind. Like, what I know. Like a lot of, you know, highfalutin. Exactly. Uh, Sounds know, like bullshit. What is mindfulness it? Mindfulness gurus talk there. That's so, right. Let's get down to business. To, some of us didn't go to school here, Juliana. So, you know, <laughs> unpack some of this uh, sensory uh, uh, equanimity. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Um, so concentration is pretty straightforward. Uh, we have really particular definitions, though. Concentration is the ability to focus on what you choose, right? Just simply put. And I think it's pretty obvious for everyone to see the value of that. If you can focus on what you choose, you get to spend more time focusing on what matters to you and less time, you know, being pulled into distractions that are not high on your priority list, let's say, or that are, uh, you know, not productive, right? So uh, mm -hmm. there's nobody that's successful that doesn't figure out some level of ability to do this, right? Yep, exactly. I mean, you can't get the puck in the net on anything unless you can do some of this. 
That's exactly right. And and these um, skills that I'm about to describe, they're naturally occurring, meaning, you know, they come up in life all the time and they are associated with some of our most fulfilling moments in life. So um, they're happening all the time and certain external situations may kind of drop you into heightened skill states. So um, maybe, for example, I know you like surfing. So maybe when you're surfing, you these skill states naturally kick in. Um, and the key is a lot of people don't know that those heightened states, those skills, you can develop them and then they're transferable. But they, it doesn't just have to be, yeah, when you're surfing. So. Well, and the interesting thing about this is, so if you use surfing as a great analogy, and I think it's why it's, um, you know, it's not really a sport. It's somewhere between a physical activity and a religion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Kelly Slater said surfing's my religion. But the interesting thing about concentration, using the definition of focus on what you choose, mm-hmm. when one... If you can lose yourself in concentration, mm-hmm. then you lose yourself. Yes, exactly. And there, it's this amazing dichotomy to me that uh, when we lose ourselves the most is when we're alive the most. So yes. when we, the more present we are for us, the less alive we are, and the less present we are, the more alive we are. Because to just finish the thought, when you're surfing a wave. You're, and I know this sounds corny, like I've lived on the West Coast too long, but what the fuck? You're, you're dancing with Mother Nature, right? You're, you're dancing with Mother Ocean. Exactly. And you're, what you're not thinking about are the, like, groceries or taking the car in for an oil change or, or, or did I say something dumb on that conference call or mm-hmm. whatever the fuck, right? You, all yep. you are is in a dance. Yep. And so... and. And you're not even there for you. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. And so now it's funny because you said uh, something about presence there that sounded like that that was not being present. Somehow there's this idea. I thought I heard an idea that to be present means that you're supposed to not lose yourself. Did I hear that correctly? No, that you are, that you're yes, still okay, present yes, in the great. moment yeah. you're not there for you. That's right. Exactly. Right? It's when we lose all self-consciousness. That's, That's right. When I'm aware of myself, oh, do I look good? Do I sound good? Am I being an idiot? Am I, and I have my judgment voice sitting, you know, in that third person sitting yeah. outside me evaluating, you know, everything you do and say. When that's alive then you're less present and yes. when you're in a highly concentrated mode like in surfing but it can happen you know it can happen in creative endeavors it happens in writing it happens in conversation it can happen in any circumstance at least that's right you're going to tell me but that's been my personal experience absolutely and so when when that that fucking voice that's always going oh you shouldn't have said that or oh that was smarter oh she's awesome or oh she sucks or when that goes away and we're just purely to use your term in concentration we're not even there for us yes exactly yep that's a great way to describe it of course you know your audience might be like oh fuck I, I'm not supposed to fucking talk about an audience, right? I we just, don't have an audience. What's just, that? Just my mom. Say hi to Jackie. <laughs> hi, Jackie. So Jackie, your mom might be like, what the fuck does he mean when he says, 
uh, I'm not around for us. You're not around for you, right? Or you're not there for you. Is that what you said? You're not there for you. You're not there for you. Yeah. That judge that you're not, you're just in the moment. Yeah. So, so that's right. It's very paradoxical, isn't it? It's kind of hard to describe what that means, what that's like, because it's an experience in the moment you go away so completely that there is no you there anymore. It's merged with what it's, it's merged with the, the board. It's merged with the wave. The wave is merged with the rest of the ocean. The ocean is merged with right. The world, the world is merged with the universe. Start singing one love. (laughs) That's it. One love. You're one with the universe. Look, it's ridiculous. I know it sounds very (laughs) California pot induced and it is partially, but, um, (laughs) That's the experience. That's why um, you, you, you know, when you surf a great wave, the next thing you want to do is go surf a great wave. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, because that situation, your whole nervous system now recognizes like, oh, that situation is going to bring this thing on, which is transcendent. That's the best way and, to and put it. One other thing about this, just to tie this off in my head, mm-hmm. um, which is. I heard, shit, I'm going to completely forget what podcast and what mm-hmm. surfer. So mm-hmm. <laughs> just call me a moron. Mm-hmm. But I heard one of the big wave surfers on a podcast a little while ago. And the podcaster was not a surfer. And so he says to him, you know, tell me about surfing. And so he tells him all about surfing and how awesome it is. And this, you know, all this awesomeness about surfing. It's a very special thing. And then to complete his thought about how awesome surfing is, he, is he says, there are people who surf who suck so much, they will never do the one thing that is the ultimate thing to do surfing, which is to barrel ride on like a, you know, on a serious wave, right? Just mm-hmm. to ride inside the tube. Oh, yeah. Um, to, you know, they call it getting barreled, right? Um, and... Um, he says, is that where tubular comes from? Tubular. Exactly. When something okay. is tubular, it's awesome because okay. you're inside the tube, right? Got it. Uh-huh. And so that is the ultimate experience most surfers want to have. And so he's describing uh, barrel riding. And then he says, surfing so awesome. There are surfers so shitty. They will never barrel ride ever. They completely suck. And they will always suck and they will never get better. And they still love it. And as he's talking, I'm like, I'm thinking, wow, he's talking about me. Right. <laughs> and, and the aha, and I do, uh, you know, from, from the pers- perspective of a, of a professional surfer, I'm literally a joke. Um, and so that, what that brings up for me is um, intrinsic versus extrinsic. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so interesting that um, we're so drawn to the shiny penny of the extrinsic validation. And I think social media makes it worse. Yeah. But the reality is, what's something that you would do over and over and over again when anybody who looks at you doing it goes, at best, you're marginal. Like, there's not a person in the world that would sit there and watch me surf. Nobody. Not one person. Maybe Jackie for 10 minutes, but probably not even that because I wouldn't be able to hold her attention. And so there's literally nobody in the world that would ever watch me surf. And I could give a fuck. I don't care. I have no personal. I, I love it. It's amazing. It's a great part of my life. 
end of discussion. And so that's a fascinating piece to this as well, because if you take your concentration, lose yourself concept, and then you say, well, and so this is all leading to a question, which is for you to truly lose yourself in that kind of deep kind of concentration you're talking about, does it need to be a high intrinsic value thing to you? Or does that happen for extrinsic value as well? Yeah. Um, no, it, it, it basically what you're doing when you develop mindfulness. And by the way, you've just described why I go on retreats, right? It's you put yourself through an ordeal. Like why the fuck would anyone ever go away for a week, two weeks and just sit all day long? Um, you know, what are they doing it for? But the, the, why you're doing it is because you develop these, it turns out that there are these skills that you can develop and that, that are transferable. So it means that you're not dependent on the situation anymore. It means that uh, you can experience Hold that. Hold on, can I interrupt you there? Yeah. It means you're not dependent on the situation anymore. What does that mean, Juliana? So it means that um, while I can still lose myself when I surf, for example, while you can still lose yourself while, while you surf, um, you can also lose yourself while sipping on a cup of tea. You can lose yourself while walking down the street. You can lose yourself, um, you know, doing anything, anything at all uh, while having a headache. Every day when I go to f- try to find my keys and my there money. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Fuck. <laughs> Seriously, it takes me 15 minutes to get out of the fucking house. <laughs> Well, me too. So it doesn't, doesn't cure all ills. <laughs> but So, so yeah. clearly mindfulness does not equal meditation. Well, actually. Meditation sitting there quietly in a room. Yeah. Like, mm. yeah. So that's where, uh, you know, the, the guy that I have trained with, Shinzen Young, that's where he really did something novel in the field because he changed the paradigm. Um, he basically said, look, anything, contemplative practice, meditation, whatever you want to call it, uh, is actually about skill development. He placed the focus, he did a reversal of how we think about it, you know, away from the form as in, oh, well, meditation means you focus on your breath or, oh, well, meditation means you sit with your eyes closed and uh, you don't move for half an hour, whatever. He took it away from the form, how it appears, and he placed the emphasis on, well, what are you actually doing when you're practicing? And it, you know, any good meditation practice develops the skills of mindfulness. And once you understand that, then you kind of, then you really get why, first of all, people would bother meditating, but also you get that, oh, well, if it's skill development, then I don't have to sit there in silence in order to develop those skills. If I understand how to develop those skills, I can do that anytime I want throughout my day. So did he, in effect, broaden the definition of vastly yeah. meditation? Is it like, cause this is the thing I've always wondered about uh, this term mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Is it just a very, and, and by the way, if it is, mm-hmm. I respect the shit out of it. So yeah. I'm not like, you know, setting something up here or whatever. Um, but is mindfulness really a n- new category design of meditation? Interesting. Um, yes, I, I think that, uh, well, what's tricky is that people often tie meditation, first of all, to religion. 
And so unfortunately, that has the consequence that then people won't practice it because they think it's about beliefs, right? And they, they don't get that it's about skill development. So one of the reasons to uh, kind of um, have this term mindfulness and set it apart is to say, hey, you can develop these skills and you don't have to believe anything in particular. So that's uh, number one is like to, to, to kind of tease that apart. So there isn't that, um, that automatic link for people. But another thing is, you know, yes, to say, hey, you can meditate anywhere, anytime. And maybe if we call it meditation, people then immediately, they get triggered and think, oh, I picture someone sitting still and that's what meditation is. What so they don't have my robe. That's exactly, that's right. What if I don't have my robe and I can't do it? You know, so, so um, the word mindfulness doesn't have any of those associations either. Uh, so it, it serves a function of breaking the spell of some of those yes. you know, associations. Yeah. And it's become, I, I don't know, you, you tell me, but in the uh, self-development, personal development, self-improvement world, it's the biggest thing and has been for several years yes yep that's that's um i think it's probably causally linked to the research that started to kick in although i'm not sure about the chicken and egg thing there but um i, I you know when i started practicing it there was backyard chickens yeah <laughs> you know a thing or two huh <laughs> yes i sure do i was just before we started i was uh I was uh, sparring with Princess Abigail. She mm. likes to fight with me a couple times a day. <laughs> but, and I bet you, you lose yourself when you're sparring with Abigail too, right? Absolutely. It's yeah. just pure in the moment, pure joy. Yeah. 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 But so I digress. <laughs> <laughs> or not. We'll see. Um, but uh, yeah, what was I saying? I don't remember. You're, you're talking about sort of how we got from... Um, um, meditation to mindfulness as yes. sort of a much broader definition, and uh, what what it was that has sparked this explosion in oh, yeah, mindfulness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everything mindfulness books, <sighs> podcasts, mindfulness pizza. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I literally saw my dad was in the hospital last year, and I walked into the cafeteria, and literally there was mindful pizza on the the like. <laughs> A, car a commercial for mindful pizza. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah of yeah. course. Yeah. But anyway, um, mindful dog walkers. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think what happened, I mean, I don't know when I, when I was first turned on to it, that was about uh, 20 years ago or so. Uh, there was no, there was very little research that was in the, you know, in the public, you know, there was some research going on, but nobody really knew about it or cared about it or thought much about it. And, um, uh, but it was slowly building and it, it reached a tipping point a few years back and just sort of exploded into uh, people's awareness um, and research just took off. And I think that that research that keeps on, you know, it's, it's all the evidence mounting around the value of it is what then gave permission. So people who had been practicing already knew the value from their own experience, but so now it becomes something, you know, like flossing your teeth where you can like, you can give permission to it on a, a broad scale because 
uh, you've got the evidence around it. And how would I think about sort of, um, so there's the present, being present, concentrating in the moment. There's that piece. Mm-hmm. But isn't there this also this other piece where I sort of um, sit and focus myself, whether it's in a meditative way or, or a prayer-like way, or there's some kind of exercise to be done around mm-hmm. um getting in touch with who I am or my purpose, or maybe even just being quiet or, you know, so tell me about the, mm. the meditation piece or, or sure. and the connection between the, you know, sitting there and doing whatever the practice is that you're going to explain to me and, sure. and the, in the world, uh, surfing, uh, experience. Yeah. So if you understand that, um, skill development, you know, that, that, that the heightened skills, I should say that, that, when those skills kick in, that's that experience of losing yourself and disappearing, you know, um, the sense of self going away because you're so absorbed in what you're doing, uh, that there's no you there anymore, like you were talking about. Um, so when you understand that uh, when that's occurring, there are these certain skills present, right? So just for example, uh, surfing, you're deeply concentrated, but there are another couple of skills happening too. Um, have you ever noticed when you're, when you're surfing, it's like you notice subtle details about your experience that you wouldn't normally, right? It's like little shifts in your movement on the board or, or the wave, the way the wave is cutting, that kind of thing that you might normally overlook. Is that, is that ringing a bell? Yeah. So there's absolutely all that. And then mm-hmm. there's things that you see that you wouldn't mm-hmm. see. You know, some of it is because of physically where you are and what you're doing, mm-hmm. but, um, like you just notice the water differently because mm-hmm. you're traveling it, you know, yeah. between 15 and 20 miles an hour, or however fast you're going. And um, another one for us being in Northern California is we surf in kelp beds. Mm-hmm. And it sounds crazy. And if you asked me to explain it, I would have a very difficult time. But over a period of time, you get good at using your feet and your body Mm-hmm. to mitigate the likelihood of the kelp grabbing your fins. Mm. When you first surf here, at least when I did, I would get caught in kelp. Or, or another example would be I get my leaf, leash caught in kelp all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so you just, over time, you develop a set of skills that are unconscious around managing your leash. Yeah. And even the way you paddle, the way you pop, and the way you move your board you, you know that your fins can get grabbed um, yeah. and it can fuck up your takeoff or whatever. And so you just, I don't know, you develop, it's crazy. It sounds insane. And, it, you know, sometimes it fails you, but you develop the sixth sense around navigating kelp. Yeah, it doesn't sound crazy to me at all. It sounds like heightened skills. There's a kind of a almost intuitive relationship to yeah. all these little details that you you somehow internalize this relationship where you're able to track all this stuff. It's happening um, in ways that you never would have imagined. So that skill, it, define that as sensory clarity. So that's the ability to to track and explore your sense experience in real time. So the concentration is about the getting so absorbed that you lose yourself. The sensory clarity is about detecting these details of your experience. But if, again, if you take sensory clarity to its ultimate, the way you took concentration to its ultimate, right? Losing yourself. So 
if you really get up close and personal with all those little details, you start to notice a, a uniformity like the, the, this, this oneness, right? This, that, that while everything appeared separate on the surface, when you get right down to it, there's a continuity happening yes. where, yes, yeah, so where it's all connected. Yeah. The physical thing that I do that um, gives me the most, uh, I, don't, I don't know if amount is the right word, but this in the most powerful way that I can think of as you're describing it is scuba diving. Hmm. Because when you're diving, you like no shit. You're in an ecosystem, <laughs> right? There's like you, you, this is the first real thing, other than like, am I going to die? But you know, I I, I I was pretty good with that. But like, once you're okay with the equipment and the basic shit, yeah. uh, it's it's you're so obviously in an ecosystem, and then you do. I think most divers have this experience. You do have this experience of okay, well, you know. The, the the rain comes from from the sky and it runs down it hits the mountain and runs down the river and into the ocean and and we're all connected and you know and, and then all of a sudden you're having you go from having a physical experience to having a spiritual experience because exactly. you know all of a sudden you're a unified being with the fish That's right <laughs> yes exactly i know it sounds ridiculous right except that when you're experiencing it it makes perfect sense and you know you can experience that to varying degrees, right? You can say it intellectually and you can kind of catch on like, oh yeah, I get it. The rain, sure, the raindrops hit the water and the fish are in the water and you're you're with the fish in the water and you can understand it on that level, on that kind of surface intellectual level. But experientially, when whole body mind, there's like, whoa, there's this connection that's palpable, it's tangible. Uh, it isn't subtle at all it's very clear I so that's see it um we have a we have a garden you know uh, my wife grew up on a small uh small ranch and um and so she's got the gene pretty pretty deep mm -hmm. uh, you know italians and you you see it in the garden i mean mm. it, you, there's no and you see that you're Mm -hmm. part, you see how you're part of it all, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you also see things that you can do that can help and things that you can do that can hurt. And it's your connection to it, you know. So at the in the morning when I eat the eggs from our girls, like it's just an interesting mm -hmm. if I ever stop and think about what's going on. It's mm -hmm. just a very interesting um, yes. your point, set of connectedness. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so there's the, the knowing of the connection that way at varying levels and at the moment by moment level, knowing the connection so fully that there's literally no separation between you and the fish, like you um, experientially right in the moment, there is no separation. So there's this getting absorbed and losing yourself. And then there's another kind of losing yourself that happens via this skill of sensory clarity, which is that you, you know, it's like you're so plugged in that um, even if you can differentiate between yourself and the fish and the ocean and the rain, um, you can simultaneously differentiate, but experientially uh, you're just aware of radical, complete connection with it all. So I think if yeah. I could just stop here, I think this is one where people's, or at least some people's loopa dupa uh, <laughs> goes right. off, right? It goes bing, bing, bing. Well, that sounds like, you know, 
pot's <laughs> legal in California and everything, and um, one love, and let's hold hands, and kumbaya, and we're all connected, and we're all just one, you know, giant right. force for awesomeness, yeah. you know, and so... Let's go to Woodstock and take off our tops or I don't know, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like I, so I think this is where some people kind of get a little lost in sort of this loop dupa spirituality, universal connection stuff. And so help me with that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, it's so ironic that uh, I'm like the I'm so pragmatic and. Man, I, I mean, I got into this out of desperation because I was so miserable. And this. Why it, were you miserable? I, I was, I, you know, people would have said genetics at the end of the day, it was because I didn't, didn't have enough mindfulness in my life as it turned out. Um, but yeah, I was suicidal at one point. So, um, it was dark and I had profound anxiety and I tried medication and medication wasn't working and I tried psychotherapy and it was kind of limited the results from that. So I was totally desperate and at a loss and looking down the barrel of a, you know, a gun that was a, just a lifetime of kind of managing my chronic misery. And I, that's the only reason you got me near meditation because I thought it was a bunch of bullshit. And, uh, I was one of those people that, you know, in fact, like I was so, <laughs> so I, so a therapist recommended it and it was like, okay, well therapy, both my parents were therapists. So I was like, okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, can we just stop here for a second and just just acknowledge the awesomeness of the obviousness of what you just said? So yeah, these two therapist parents and they raised this totally fucked up kid. Oh yeah, are you kidding? <laughs> of course, because they were analyzing the fuck out of you the whole way, and they made you nuts. My, my dad has a postulate. Everything, Julia. Well, he's 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 basically like, yeah, you don't, you know, you, you get into the field which you're least you know, it's suited for basically <laughs> that's his, my dad's a funny guy. So, um, but yeah, you know, uh, it's definitely not a cure all. And, and, you know, he got into it. My dad got into it for his own personal psychological shit that, you know, it's like each generation takes a little step forward. So, uh, uh, yeah, I was and totally, that's why you made the comment. It was genetics. Yeah. Yeah. Argue it's genetics. You could, except that that wasn't my experience in the end um, once oh. I got out from under myself. But that's what I told myself back then. Oh, I've got fucked up genetics and that's just the way it is. And so and I was so paranoid about like I, the, the hippy dippy shit. I just, you know, I was so turned off whenever anyone would say that they'd had a spiritual experience. I'd be like, yeah, well, whatever. You know, I. I just attribute it to an act of imagination or whatever. I just thought it was bullshit. So I, but you know, this therapist suggests it at the time I was like a starving artist and I, I couldn't afford to do much. So I was like, fuck it. It's free. I'm going to do this thing. And, uh, I gave it, you know, I think I gave it three months or something like that. I was like, I'm going to just, I'm going to go for this full on half an hour a day, three months, and then I'm going to assess. Uh, and, you know, I'll see what it does. So I started doing it. And, 
you know, right away, it started having some interesting benefits. It was like, oh, I'm having little psychological insights. And that mattered to me. The same way surfing matters to you, psychology mattered to me. So it was like showing up in good ways around my ability to understand why I was doing what I was doing from a psychological perspective. So I was like, okay, this is helping me get more psychological clarity. I'll keep going with this. And Okay, it's kind of, I feel a little more grounded. Okay. So basically, like, she gave me five minutes of instruction. And for two years, I did that. And I did not go near any kind of like, I didn't do any research on it. I didn't reach out for teachers, because I was terrified that if I reached out for a teacher, uh, they would say some hippy dippy bullshit. And I would, I would say, fuck this and stop meditating. Uh, So I relate. (laughs) I love it. The other, the, yeah. well, there's there's two things I want to say. The first one was I don't know why you sort of prompted this in my brain, but you did. So I th- just thought I'd share it with you. There's a I think my favorite Wayne Dyer quote mm-hmm. is when he said, uh, "Let me see if I get this right. Uh, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience." Mm-hmm. And yeah. I just always thought if you invert the model, because of course, the paradigm in my head is I'm a human being having a spiritual experience. Um, and so it just, it, it, it really does change the perspective. Anyway, I just yeah. think it's a, it's a great, yeah. um, it's a turns great. out, turns out. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, and it's like, you think you're, you're the one in charge, right? <laughs> like, yeah. why did we end up thinking we were in charge? You know, as if like I birthed myself, what, you know, we're, we don't even know how we got here. But anyway, uh, mom and dad, you know, got frisky, but I mean, other than that, we don't know. That's right. Well, how does that all, you know, you know, why does it play out like that? (laughs) Who knows? But in any case, um, so I want to hear a crazy story. Yeah. So there's this surf legend around here. His name was Marty. And unfortunately he passed away not that long ago, but, Mm. um, and he was just, uh, a classic Santa Cruz character would surf year round without a wetsuit. Um, in the winter, maybe he'd put on like a vest, wow. board shorts, and he always had uh, booties and a hat. So he'd wear booties, a hat, board shorts, and a vest in the winter, and he'd go topless most of the year. So maybe six months of the year, he, he was just in board shorts with his booty and his hat. Anyway, he was a character and a half. And um, one day I was at, I got out of the water a little bit before him and I was sitting there still watching people surf and he came up to me and he says, you know something, you're a great swimmer. And I said, oh, thanks, Marty. And he goes, yeah, because you beat tens of thousands of other guys just to get here. And so when you go surfing, you're just returning to your roots as one of the greatest swimmers of all time. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that's fantastic. Ah, that's, so there's that's so much love in that. Juliana is my yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, 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 we're dad swimmers. One particular swimmer beat out all the rest. And here you are. And here I am. That's but right. I, I did want to diverge in a different place. Yeah. Is, and you and I talked about this uh, last time we were together. Um, so, you know, you're in this. And look, I'm going to say this with love, right? You're in a business being a mindfulness. What, what do you call yourself? A mindfulness coach or advisor? Or I'm a mindfulness teacher. teacher. Yeah. Okay. So 
you know, it's a little loopy doopy, right? I mean, it's not like you're an accountant. That's true. Right. Um, and so, so that's kind of point A. And point B, most of the people that I've met who do the kinds of things you do are very, let me just say, granola y. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know they're very yoga y and uh-huh. very, you know they're they're and they speak in a very particular way and yeah. they're very you know supportive and voices and they. I can do that, Chris. If you really want, I can. We can talk about your feelings. Yeah, and and so <laughs> you swear and shit like you you talk like a piratey truck driver. Or something. <laughs> You're not one of these like. You know, I, I, do you live in Berkeley? <laughs> I don't. I live in L.A. And I yeah, grew up in okay. Jersey. I grew up, I was born in New York City. I grew up in Jersey. You're, you hear the Jersey girl in me, which is she's still alive and kicking. And yeah, um, you know, I, I, uh, I grew up saying, I grew up listening to my dad say, fuck you, asshole, on the, on the freeway when he was driving us into New York. And it stuck, you know, um, but, Doesn't but truly feel great to say, fuck you, asshole on the freeway. I mean, right. It, you know, it, it's uh, the, the thing is like, well, and it's look, I, I had a whole life as a musician before I found my way as a mindfulness teacher. And I have to say, like, it was a pretty um, thankless uh, <laughs> journey as a musician, although I, you know, the, it was really gratifying to make music and I had a lot of respect among, you know, my peers and people. Uh, what kind pe- of music? Uh, I was a singer songwriter and I, I did kind of, um, well, I started off with more pop music uh, and then found my way into more folky jazz kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah, had a whole other life, and I got pretty far with it. I had a deal on Warner Brothers right off the bat, and then I w- had publishing deals, uh, you know, um, BMG, Chrysalis, and toured opening for Don Henley and uh, stuff like that. So, ho, 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 slow down. And stuff like touring opening for Don Henley, <laughs> that's not a stuff like that. <laughs> you opened for Don fucking Henley of the yeah. Eagles? Yeah, I did for a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. And so let's spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> so what's it like to, what's the biggest crowd you ever played to opening for Don Henley? Um, probably 12,000. So what's that like playing rock and roll music in front of 12,000 people? Well, you know, it's actually surprisingly, the scarier ones are a little bit smaller and indoors. And like that was arena, you know, uh, like a, um, an amphitheater. And when you're in an amphitheater, there's all this space between you and the audience. And that space makes it feel like you're just in your bathroom playing. So it, the intimacy kind of factor goes away and therefore some of the intimidation factor goes away, at least for me. So in an odd way, it was easier to play an amphitheater with 12,000 people than it was to play a 4,000 seat theater where you could hear a pin drop because then, you know, it was like, Whoa, okay. People are listening. I remember one gig where I was like, I was so used to, cause you know, when you're opening, people are filing in and there are conversations going on and, you know, you catch the attention that you catch, but 
Uh, it's a lot looser, but I remember one gig where it was like dead silent. Everybody was tuned into me. And I was like, man, I wish they'd just talk among themselves. <laughs> this is really hard. <laughs> so. Wow. And, uh, I, I, you know, I got to ask, what what's Don like? He's awesome. I mean, <clears throat> he... Uh, it's kind of crazy how, how that all went down. It's sort of a magical story. I was working uh, as a personal assistant for someone in Beverly Hills because I was trying to make it as an artist and struggling. And I had my record was produced by this guy, Ethan Johns, who uh, is quite a well-known producer. And he had been at a party with Don and Don had asked him, he had worked on Ryan Adams. I don't know if you're familiar with Ryan Adams stuff, but he'd made a couple of records with Ryan. And so Ryan Don is one of the pioneers in what today we call sort of modern Americana, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Ethan had made a record with him and Don had said, hey, you know, I'd love to hear that record. So when Ethan sent him Ryan's record, he also sent him my record. So uh, that was it. Then Ethan got busy. Don got busy. And it looked like things were just sort of dead in the water. Like, oh, you know, oh, I, Don left this crazy message on Ethan's answering machine. That was when we had answering machines. It was like Ethan played it for me. It was basically like he just loved the record. But then nothing ever happened. And and so then I'm working as a personal assistant for this woman in Beverly Hills. And she's putting on an event. And it's this small event. But Henley is performing at this tiny little event. So of all weird coincidences, all like convergence is happening all at once. And so I knew that this was going down. I was like, okay, this is destiny. I got to meet this guy. I got to say hi to him. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen because on the day of the event, I'm up in the rafters with my, uh, with my, uh, boss working on her speech and he's down doing his sound check. And I was like, okay, this is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Shit. I got to talk to him. This is crazy. You know, the coincidence. And we're like, you know, walking back downstairs as he's finishing his last song. I'm hearing it come to an end. I feel like this is my window. We get lost in the kitchen. Can't make our way out. We finally stumble onto the floor just as he's finished his last note and my boss like kind of bows to him and says, thank you. And he comes over to us and I turned to him and I said, Hey, you know, my, my name's uh, Juliana Ray. And I, you know, I did this record with Ethan Johns. And at that point he turns to me and he says, Oh, it's a pleasure to meet you. I, I listen to your song, uh, your, your record every day in my car. And my boss at that point, her jaws on the floor because she doesn't know my, my other life really. And, uh, it all gets really weird, you know? <laughs> so, um, so, can so we I just pause you there for a second. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I just want to make sure I heard what you just said. So you, you get up the courage, you get in the position, there he is, you introduce yourself and he says, yeah, I know who you are. I listen to your record in my car every day. That's John right. Henley said that to you. That's true. It did. It's, that's Holy exactly God, what happened. Juliana Ray. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. Fucking <laughs> Don Henley. I know. I mean, he's one of the greatest of all time. There's just no question about that. Even if you don't like him, I happen to like him. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how you can't. But anyway, even if you don't, there's no denying Don fucking Henley. Yeah. Yeah. That's an achievement. Achievement, yeah. woman. 
Yeah, dude. Yeah. And so how do you go from that to, hey, want to come on tour with me? Well, so this is where it gets really interesting and it and actually converges right back to my mindfulness shit. So, um, <laughs> so, so we stand, so she, my, my boss was awesome. And she's like, well, I'll, I'll let you two take it from here. And she exits. And I'm like, well, he, he basically says, Hey, I, I I'd love to help you, but there's really not much I can do at that time. He was sort of taking on the the record industry and nobody was too happy with him. And he just didn't see how he, he could offer any kind of support beyond just saying, Hey, I love your record. So I said, you know, what? I'm sure I'll think of something. So we left it at that. And I basically just like pitched him on the idea that, well, Hey, you know, if you took me out on the road and you wanted to like, you, you could, uh, uh, you know, if you wanted to co-own the record, then you could be making money on my, it was, it was naive. He doesn't need money from my record, but it was a way to sort of say like, you know, uh, you could, uh, own a piece of my record and take me on the road and it will work out great. I pitched him this idea. He didn't take me up on that offer, but that's when he started inviting me out on the road. And that's wow. how that went down. Yeah. That is so incredible. Yeah. You, li- you lived the rock and roll dream. You, you did it. I did. And well, here's the cool thing, too, is I, of course, like while all that was happening, there was a part of me like, you know, I'm meant for so much more than this. And I'm stuck in this job. And it's not, you know, my potential is job of opening for Don Henley. No, no, no. Sorry. Before my my personal assistant job. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) Before that happened. Yeah. I, I was feeling really trapped in my personal assistant role and like, you know, I'm, I'm meant for bigger things and all, all the kind of things that you tell yourself when you're, we you don't feel like your, your life is reflecting, you know, who you are on the inside. So I, I was struggling with it. And one day, and I had been training, you know, I've been practicing for years at that point. And one day I said to myself, you know what, this is not going to last forever. And you got to, change your attitude about this or you're just going to be miserable. This was before I had heard from from Henley but after we had had that that meeting. I said, you know, I'm I've got to turn my job. I've got to, there's there's the job which is the role I play. I go there, I I, you know, do the personal assistant stuff. But there's a bigger job here and that is I've got to develop my skills, concentration, clarity, equanimity, because that's where my true fulfillment is in those skills. I knew it clearly enough, but I wasn't putting it into practice. So at that moment, I changed my whole relationship to that job. And from that point on, every day I walked into that job, it became an opportunity to develop my skills because I knew that it was the skills that were going to be responsible. Like we were saying earlier, I knew that those three skills are really what give the fulfillment, whether you're surfing or whether you're stuffing envelopes, as I had to do for for my boss. So with that new attitude, I basically just turned my whole job into a training ground. You know, I, when I went to the bathroom, there was like a, 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 a trash can that made a bell sound. Um, so I would like kick the trash can to remind myself, this is what you're doing here. And then I, you know, walk down the hallway to get some water. I'd focus on my feet as I was walking down the hallway. I'd straighten my spine. Everything I did, I did to develop those skills and, Literally, uh, it transformed my relationship to that workplace situation so that by the time I got the call from Henley, I was totally at peace with what I was doing. And it wasn't like uh, I was being rescued in desperation from something that, you know, 
uh, I couldn't take anymore. It was like, oh, okay, there's this natural transition. I'm moving on now. So that was kind of an so interesting. You were ready for it. You were, you had been positioning your, you know, Yeah. I love this expression, um, uh, position yourself or you will be positioned, right? That's just exactly. how it works in life. So you had been positioning yourself so that one day Don Henley would call. You were training for that phone call. Yeah. Years, yep. Right. I, yeah. And you could say that I was training whether that call came or not. I was training because training made my life better regardless. And then mm. when that call came, I was ready for it. Wow. That's fascinating. There's a martial yeah. arts thing about that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you, you train, it's like, well, you, what are you doing? You're training to fight. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, why are you doing that? Well, there's lots of reasons why, but one of them is so you never have to fight. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's exactly right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It goes, why did you decide to stop being a musician? Um, well, a bunch of different things. I mean, you know, that's, I, my identity was so hardwired to it, but it was a pretty miserable, uh, for me anyway, kind of a thankless, like I said, you know, you're, you're constantly in the position of, um, trying to get the business to, t to pay attention and trying to get the business to, collaborate with you around your creative vision, essentially. And, um, you know, I, I just, I, the stuff, the music I was interested in making, they're really the, the marketplace, as far as the business was concerned, nobody really saw where it would fit into the marketplace clearly enough that I found a good collaborator around that ever. Um, I found wonderful creative collaborators. Like I ended up working with top producers um, and top musicians and that happened effortlessly. So clearly, you know, my fellow musicians, you know, loved what I did and were very responsive to it, but the business never really got it. And I was, you know, at a certain point I realized I didn't even want that lifestyle. I didn't even care about that lifestyle anymore. And what I kept coming back to is, you know, through all the crazy ups and downs, because I would do something like I'd play, you know, a Henley. I remember doing a, a, a gig in Orlando in a, an arena. So it was one of those larger venues. And then afterwards, you know, there are people lined up and you're signing autographs and people are telling you how amazing you are. And it's awesome. It's great. You have those, one of those moments where you're like, yeah, this is, you know, this is why I do this. It's so you're connecting and you feel so validated. And, you know, so then, and then literally like two nights later, I had a gig booked at, I was like, I think the knitting factory in Hollywood. And it's like, you know, there are six people in the room and none of them are actually there. They're just there by coincidence. None of them were there to actually see me play. And they're talking through my whole set and totally ignoring me. And, you know, and, and what was cool was that I had the skills to make the most of either situation, you know, and, but you ride that yo-yo all the time in various ways. I mean, I think anyone who's successful rides that yo-yo where it's like one minute, oh yeah, the world's opening up, it's all happening. And the next minute, oh fuck, it's all going to shit and you know, whatever, I've blown it. So um, my, my big takeaway as I got more and more immersed in mindfulness training 
was, you know what? There is only one thing that is reliable, that has been a reliable source of kind of healing and self-care and uh, fulfillment. And that was my practice, the mindfulness practice itself. So at a certain point, you know, as I was sort of, I was getting older as a woman, the business doesn't like that. And I, I didn't really actually really like the lifestyle. And I was just tired of trying to get people to tune in on that level to what I was offering. And I just, you know, and I also never, I was far more conscientious, you know, that's the thing, like, you know, the one good thing about rock and roll is you can say fuck all the time. It's like, it's like, you know, you get to isn't be great. Isn't, it is. It's, it is. Well, it's awesome. Pretend I'm in the rock and roll business. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, and in a way it's like the more of a fuck up you are, the more they're like, Oh, she's brilliant. You know, it can, and, but I was way too conscientious for that. I, I, I was always wanting to be a good person and wanting to show up on time and stuff that nobody values in that industry at all. And, and and so I was kind of torn between two worlds. Um, and, but what started happening was I just took a hard look at my situation. And then, you know, actually, uh, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and ended up, uh, she died of ovarian cancer ultimately a few years later. And that was a moment of reckoning, you know, for me to really look at my life and where it was going and what it was all about. And, I just realized, you know, the one consistent, um, the one consistent resource that I have that has transformed my life in ways I could never have imagined is this mindfulness practice. So how can I make that the center of my life? That's, that's where it started from was like, mm -hmm. I just re-examined my life and thought, oh, this is the thing. And then, okay, well, if this is a thing, how do I make it more central, you know? And then, can, yeah. Can I interrupt you for a sec? Yeah. Because I'm connecting a dot. I'm, I'm sure you've connected this dot. Um, so you have this whole career. You have a level of success, you know, as a kid with musical aspirations myself, and a little bit of success, nothing close to what you described. Um, I have an appreciation for what that could have been like, you know, mm -hmm. your experience. Mm -hmm. Um and you got to, you know, you got to the major leagues. You didn't win the World Series or the Stanley Cup, but, you know, you That's were right. playing at the major league level. Yes. For sure. There's no question about that. So you have that, which is amazing success that the most musicians can never even get remotely close to. Mm -hmm. um, and now you're doing this. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, you are um, very much purposely designing your life around, you know, what I would say are things that make you different, but I don't know how you would say it. But in, in, in both what you have, you have done proactive life design in a very uh, meaningful way, at least twice. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yes. So... If I was somebody who wanted to learn from you, forget mindfulness for a second, although maybe that's part of the answer. I don't know. You'll tell me. Maybe it is. I don't know. You'll tell me. Yeah. But if I'm somebody that looks at Juliana and says, fucking hey, girl, like you've had like two magical lives, at least, and maybe others that we haven't gotten to, but um, at a pretty high level of success. I mean, the music one and then, you know, 
early in mindfulness, right? Um, and have made a big name there. And so what? how do you do that? How do you do proactive life design like that, particularly in ways that have you achieve and stand out thing in, in a way and make a difference and, and so forth at that kind of level? Yeah. Well, you know, back originally, I would have said, write a to-do list. <laughs> I mean, literally like uh, I, you know, if, well, that's a kind of a, uh, I'll, I'll give a deeper answer than that. But it, it was for me coming out to LA, I thought I'd be an actress. And I literally just wrote down like, oh, you know, get an agent, get a guest starring role on a TV show, get a record deal. I thought I was into started writing music. And I just thought, okay, do that, you know. So I, I think there was a kind of a blind fearlessness back then where I just dump it, jump in headlong and, and, um, really didn't think about the consequences until I was, um, you know, treading water and suddenly it occurred to me, I was in the middle of the ocean. That, that often would happen where I just sort of jump in and, and, uh, I'd follow, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd pursue something cause it, it, it seemed like the obvious thing to do. I, I don't know as I think about it in terms of like my, the pursuits of my life, like that the reason I ended up making music or whatever, I, I would just, um, it just seemed so obvious to do that. Uh, like that, it just was so clear to me that I, I, because I felt alive when I did those things, going back to your surfing, you know, it's like, it was such a contrast. It was so obvious that I felt alive when I was performing and uh, that I felt free, you know, from the constraints. I, I went to college and did all that stuff, but oh man, I just, I was good at academics. I, I could bullshit my way through any class, you know, <laughs> but I, I then therefore thought, well, this is bullshit then. If I can just, if I can just talk my way through anything, then what am I really getting here? So, but I came alive when I performed and that's, what I kept moving, I kept moving towards that heat, I guess, and finding ways to move towards that heat. And um, so I, I think just in general, move towards the heat. And, and for me then, though, um, so I had all these amazing things happen. I got a record deal on Warner Brothers. I was produced by one of the top producers in the world, a guy named Jeff Lynn. And that was like even before the... Oh, the so slow down. ELO Jeff Lynn? Yeah, yeah. ELO Jeff Lynn produced one of your records? My first record, yeah. How the fuck does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... I mean he, produced, he was in the Traveling Wilburys, for fuck's sakes. Yeah. I think he put that together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty surreal. Um, you know, I came to L.A. knowing just a couple of people, uh, but they were... Uh, influential people. One of them is, was uh, Michael Kamen. He was my cousin. So like second cousin once removed, he was my mom's first cousin or something like that, or second cousin. I can't remember the genetics there, but anyway, he was, he had made a successful career as a, um, a composer for big movies. Um, Robin Hood was one of them. Uh, the Kevin Costner, Robin Hood back in the day. And so I came out right when he was, um, it was 
he was renting the studio where the Wilburys had made their record. And uh, Jeff Lynn would stop by and, and play tennis. And uh, one day I happened to be there visiting my cousin and like eating the food from the fruit bowl because I didn't have any money. Like I'd go over there and he'd feed me. He was very kind. And I'd hang out with Stacy, who is his assistant, who's a dear friend to this day. And, um, you know, I just like hang out and watch what was going down. And, it, you know, I got a, a bird's eye view to his, his composing and creating music. It was pretty awesome. So I'd spend a lot of time there. And one day Jeff was there and I didn't have no idea who he was. Um, I just thought like, wow, that guy, you know, he had, he wore sunglasses indoors and I was like, wow. And, um, uh, they were working on something and they needed voices, random voices for a scene in the movie. So I happened to be there. Hey, you want to jump in the booth and give us some voices? Sure. So I started singing and Jeff said, Oh, you've got a good voice. And what I didn't know was that I later learned from his engineer, Richard was that he had actually been on the hunt for a voice, a female voice, someone unknown, that he could kind of uh, mold because, you know, it was a contrast. It was a challenge that was very different from working with, you know, George Harrison and Tom Petty and Bob Dylan and all these legendary people. I think he, he was sort of the idea of taking someone from scratch really appealed to him. So it was just timing. I, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Well, and you made sure to put yourself there. I mean, I did. You had the relative, which you know is just pure dumb luck. But uh, look, a lot of us find ourselves in a pure dumb luck situation, and you know we stick our finger finger up our butt and wonder what happened. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I definitely. There are are definitely those times in life, right, Juliana, where look, you can call it the universe or the force or God or whatever you want to call it, but or life, but just taps you on the shoulder and goes, "Hey, pay attention over here, eh?" Totally. Yeah, I, I, I will say, yeah, my life has been an odd, like, I did get these crazy, find myself in these crazy uh, situations, you know, just there with um, my cousin and Jeff Lynn hanging out. That's crazy. For most people don't get the opportunity to do that. But it's also true that what you said, as soon as I knew that there was some interest there, I went home and immediately dug in writing songs uh, and really considering who Jeff was as a producer, because it so happened that I really deeply admired his music. And so it was easy for me to start to shape my creative process around that. So I, I immediately thought in those terms and showed up to a recording session I did for him with a song ready that I thought he might respond to. And so I definitely did my homework and, and did my prep work. But the interesting you thing. mindful about it. I, yeah, without thinking about it back then, I didn't know what mindfulness was. I, I, I did though. I was good. You were at, very focused on it. You thought about yes. every element of this. I absolutely you did. You're not going to go in there and wing it. No, no way. And I was going to dive in wholeheartedly, bring my whole self to bear. You know, I was really going to give it my all creatively. I, because for me, that's where the rush was. You know, it was like I was fully alive and uh, I was, I was um, taking my cues from that sense of aliveness. And, and that's what, you know, kind of made me take action. 
But the, the thing that's interesting, so I had this whole thing unfold in this crazy way. I end up getting to do this record on Warner Brothers signed by the president of the company and all this crazy shit got great, you know, reviews and all this stuff. And then two years later, like, okay, you know, the, the promotions department didn't hear a single, they didn't know what to do with the record. It was too different, I guess. And um, so then I'm back out on my ass. I'm, I'm waitressing. And then I start to sink again. I start to get depressed again. The suicidal stuff starts to surface again. It had been really strong just before so you, I got you go from being signed by the president of, did you say Warner brothers? Yeah. To waitressing in two years. And yeah, no shit. You're suicidal. You're fucking <laughs> yeah. upside down. You're like, wait a minute. You, yeah. you were, you were going to be the, you know, some giant rock star. And now, um, you know, would you like fries with that? I mean, fucking hey. Exactly. That's right. Yep. And that predates the Henley stuff. So I did hang in there long enough to have, you know, another go round at it all. But it was what happened was before I got that record deal, I had been suicidally depressed. That record deal kind of catapulted me up, right? So I was I was sort of on a high, but I also that whole time when that was going down. I was not happy inside. I was freaked out. I was sure that the opportunity was going to, you know, not pay off the way I needed it to, or, you know, I, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing on a certain level. It, it all did happen really fast within a year of me being in LA. Um, and I, I was unhappy through it all as much as I was like thrilled that it was happening. And so then when it ended, when I was back to waitressing, I started to sink again. I started to get suicidally depressed again. And that when it happened the second time, I was like, Oh, this is, this is not good because I could just start to see my life unfolding in this pattern of like suicidally depressed. Maybe something tugs me out of it. And then that thing doesn't pan out the way I wanted it to. And then I crash. Now I'm suicidally depressed in my, I'm used to this now. Oh, right. Suicidally depressed. That's like a pattern I know. And maybe I, one day it just keeps happening. That routine keeps happening. And maybe one day I, I kill myself. Like I could see where things were heading. And um, that's when it was like, okay, look, in a way, the fact that this extremely amazing thing happened to me, that's when it was like, oh, okay, it's not enough. Even if all the things work out the way I want them to, it's not going to be enough for this particular psyche. So that's, in a weird way, crashing and failing was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yes. And thus you can't be a legend without being a loser. <laughs> exactly. There you go. That's right. Cause it got me on the tip of, of mindfulness and, and that what mindfulness did was help me discover how to have an extraordinary life, whether or not shit works out the way you want it to, you know? Yeah. Well, Juliana, I could talk to you for hours. Uh, I want to be uh, mindful of your time. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? I do. We talked about two skills. I really want to give you the third one because that third one is kind of central. It's equanimity. So I want to just like go over that. So you've got everything you need to, uh, if you decide you want to, you know, explore this a little bit further for yourself, which I won't be offended if you don't. But um, uh, I, I want to talk about 
So we've got now going back to the surfing thing, we had you, you get so concentrated that you lose yourself in it. And then we've got, you notice these fine details to the point where there's that sense of that interconnectedness. Um, and then, and by the way, to take the hippy dippy shit out of that, it's just taking it to its natural conclusion. It's just like radical, it's like HD, you know, it's like you can th see things in a fuzzy way or you can see things in a clear way. When you see things in a clear way, often it's just not what you thought it was. That's all. So you just got to pay close attention and you start seeing that things are not quite the way you thought they were. Um, equanimity is, so you ever notice how when you're there surfing, there's that sense of like uh, a sense of harmony or peace or contentment or completion. That's that everything's okay. You ever have that? Yeah. And um, because obviously surfing is a physical thing and then there's this dance with nature thing. Yes. So there, it's, 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 it's that plus a bunch of other stuff and surfers had to invent a word for it. Cause they're really, you know, happy doesn't sort of, uh, get it right so that word is stoked or stoke <laughs> nice um, and one good wave can leave you stoked for you know days <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah um, and so it's yeah it's a combination of all of those things and it, it's really um you know a sort of surfery pothead way of saying um a a, a, a powerful intrinsic feeling that has a fairly long tail. Yes. Yeah. And that intrinsic feeling is maybe a, a sense of um, uh, the, the effortless flow of nature or something to that effect, a sense of the, the kind of naturalness of everything, that everything is just kind of unfolding in an effortless way. Is that a way yeah, to I describe mean, it? Well, sometimes surfing is not effortless, uh, mm -hmm. but but if you sort of take it out of the realm of surfing for a second, um, when you engage in something that you find meaningful and there's a, a clear outcome or clear forward progression in some way, or maybe it was just a super thoughtful, interesting conversation where you learned some things, whatever, or maybe it was a nice walk you went on, but, but that there's, something that occurs in an experience um, of a partic partic unique particular quality that kind of stays with you for a while. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you do it for prim primarily, if not 100%, um, intrinsic reasons. So that's an afterglow effect of the experience. And I, I would suggest that that afterglow is, is the result of having gotten so absorbed in the experience that you lost yourself and that yes. lo losing yourself is what yields that, that kind of uh, all these rewards that now research is showing is linked to mindfulness practice. So that sense of emotional well-being or of tranquility or of a pleasant flow of energy that comes from those heightened skill states. That the equanimity skill is the ability to allow experience to come and go without push or pull. So that just means that you're not fighting with your experience. You're able to just let it do its thing. Let it, you know, you're, you're able to be in that dance of nature like you described it 
and you're like a good dance partner with nature. It's like you're just going along, letting yes. nature do its thing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. there's that old uh, Marianne Williamson quote where she says, God's plan works and yours doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah, right. So you, you, you want to call it God or the universe or life or fate or, uh, you know, I don't mean to put like heavy godness on it if you know what i mean <laughs> i i hear you yeah no i mean that's the thing like whatever we want to call it we all know it from experience and and um and so that's equanimity equanimity yeah so and that skill of equanimity by the way there a recent study that was done with the the system i teach uh showed that it's that skill that makes a difference around like lowering the cortisol levels the stress levels so the ability. So is that where peace comes from? Well, it's peace comes from the three skills working together, you could say. So when you've got the concentration, you can be fully absorbed. When you've got the sensory clarity, you can notice the fine details to the point where there's no separation. When you've got the equanimity, you can stop fighting or interfering with your experience to the point where you're doing the dance of nature. And again, you, you, the, da the dance of nature starts to do you, right? There's no, uh, um, there's no you trying to control it anymore. You just going along with it. You're a channel, if you will, whatever you want to call it. That sounds so hippy dippy. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but if you take those all together, then um, that those skills happening together is what we call being mindful. And that is, you know, another way to say that is you're in the present moment or um, yes, you're, you, you are experiencing a kind of peace that goes beyond whether the room is quiet or not. For instance, it's a kind of peace that, that uh, you know, some people might relate. Uh, I don't know. Have you ever had this experience where you, you feel peaceful even when there's activity all around you. Yeah. And that um, being at peace is not a function of circumstance or surroundings. Yeah. Being at peace is not a function of circumstance or surroundings. That's absolutely right. So um, what is it a function of? Well, one way to think of what it's a function of is it's a function of the three skills, concentration, clarity, equanimity, all working together. Got it. Anything else, Juliana Ray? Nope. You're awesome. I really appreciate this conversation. <laughs> I do too. It was really, really fun. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. Um, when we uh, connected uh, back when, I, I wondered like, oh, is this going to be like, is he going to, is he going to fight me on this? What's this going to be like? Are we going to get into a, a brawl? Uh, and, uh, I, I, uh, I've really enjoyed it. And I, you know what? I would have enjoyed the brawl too. I, I could have handled that, but, um, this was really I want a brawl with you. I know. I'm, I'm curious. And I, what I, what I love about you is y you're someone who, um, you know, I can give you a little poke poke on the loopy doopy stuff, right? And we can laugh at it. And, and, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, people who, how do I want to say this? 
there's something wrong with people who don't have some kind of sense of humor. <laughs> you know, like if you're so fucking sensitive that when somebody gives you a bit of a jab, you can't have a sense of humor about it. Like something's, something's off in your life, man. Yeah. You need mindfulness. Right? Like, if you're so got, if you're so fucking serious that when somebody gives you a little bzz, bzz about whatever your thing is or something you're into or whatever that you can't laugh about it, like don't take yourself so fucking seriously. I don't know. I, People who don't have a sense of humor. Um, I remember, uh, remember, Mister T. I pity the fool. I pity them. <laughs> It's true. But there's, there's a lot of people in, in your line of work who mm. have a very sanctimonious yes. sort of, uh, they're wrapped in sanctimonious bullshittery. <laughs> and, uh, and you're not, you're the opposite of that. So I, I, yeah, that's, I don't want to fight with you about it. I'm curious about it. Yeah, you know, I hear that. Why a New York, New Jersey shit kicker ends <laughs> up in, you know, loopy doopy land. <laughs> It's like Candyland. I loved Candyland as a kid. Yeah, I, I, um, well, and you know, what's awesome is, uh, I was ready for any and all of it. And, um, it's really a joy to, uh, connect with you around it on this level from your own experience. And it's a lot of fun. And yeah, I think the, um, the sanctimony, well, you just see where people are trying to put on some idea of who they think they're supposed to be for other people. And that is a trap you can fall into even in this space where the whole point of it is you're supposed to be more authentic. Yeah, but exactly. yeah, it's like, I find people who use the word authentic a ton, they tend to be full of shit. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. Authentic and maybe not talk about it so much. Uh, I, yeah. 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 It's a trap, you know, and that is, I will say like, the transition from, you know, rock and roll where you could be a total fuck up and it's like, Ooh, that's intriguing, uh, to, you know, like, uh, um, straighten up and settle in and relax your shoulders. And, you know, the, the kind of, the fact that you're supposed to be such a good person, uh, as a mindfulness teacher, like at first I was like, man, this is a lot of pressure. I'm not sure I'm really up for for that kind of pressure, but uh, that's the best excuse. You you can be a total fuck up and get drunk and do coke and shit because you're a rock star mindfulness person. It's like, hey, I didn't give up all the rock starring. Where's yeah. my coke? That's it. Except I couldn't even do coke when I was a rock star. You know, when I was, I was like, maybe that's why I didn't end up being a rock star is because I couldn't pull that shit off coke. back then. That's, I, that's right. <laughs> Clearly, I missed my calling. All right. Well, you know, round it's not two. Too late maybe. For you, Julie. Yes, thanks. You can always pick up coke that's a little right. later in life. All right. Well, maybe you'll introduce maybe that's me. That's their to new tagline. <laughs> Cocaine. It's never too late. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Phew. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Whew. Juliana Ray. I know I say it a lot, but another great example of why podcasting is awesome. It's the only medium other than sitting down with her in person that you can really spend time and dig into um, the life of an accomplished and um, engaging and insightful person like Juliana is on a podcast. Now, in business, you got to know the numbers because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And as you know, today more than ever, 
It's critical for business leaders to be on top of their seminal numbers, particularly the numbers that drive the growth of your business. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. Imagine having every critical number you need to manage and grow your business at your fingertips, on your smartphone, anytime, anywhere. NetSuite makes that happen. Uh, They offer awesome dashboards that allow you to stay on top of sales, finance, accounting, orders, inventory, and even HR instantly. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. So I'd love it if you went to netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, um, as a listener to this podcast, NetSuite is offering you the opportunity to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. netsuite.com slash different. Because you got to know. And if you don't know, you're kind of up the creek without a paddle. And with NetSuite, you're always going to (laughs) know. All right, you can find us on the internet at Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. If you want to send us email, you got any thoughts, you got anything you want to share, send it to blackhole at lockhead.com. I'm at Lockhead on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to uh, check me out there, I've been told by my uh, nephew that my social media game is weak. (laughs) So You can track my weak social media if you like. (laughs) All right. We would like to thank the amazing Juliana Ray, our friend and guest today. Uh, She's outstanding, and I would encourage you to check out her website at unifiedmindfulness.com. That's unifiedmindfulness.com. And um, the good people at onelifefullylive.org, where we help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out uh, the number one, lifefullylive.org. A podcast that uh, I love, Grumpy Old Geeks Podcast with our friend and guest on episode number six, Jason DeFilippo. Um, and now, hey, is it? Uh, are you feeling a little overwhelmed? Could you use some help? Maybe you should uh, check out our good friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance at bottleneck.online. And are you in the B2B business? Um, Do you wish your website could represent your company as well as your best spokesperson? Then why not check out our friends at Atrenet, Atre, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And uh, don't forget Habitat for Humanity. Habitat's vision is of a world where everyone has a decent place to live. If you want to make a difference, check out Habitat.org. Now, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. And all rights do remain disturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast was produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Remember to teach kids mindfulness. Buy John's Crazy Socks. Always shower with a friend. Thank you, uh, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Douglas Parker, Chief Executive Officer of American Airlines. Sorry, Dougie. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And until we get a chance to hang out again, follow your different. <laughs> <laughs>